You are listening to an annual reviews prefatory interview. In this interview, Margaret Levy, editor of the Annual Review of Political Science, talks with Eleanor Ostrom. Professor Ostrom is the co-founder with her husband, Vincent Ostrom, and longtime co-director of the Workshop in Political Theory and Policy Analysis at Indiana University, and she now serves as its senior research director. She is currently the Arthur F. Bentley Professor of Political Science at Indiana University, as well as research professor and the founding director of the Center for the Study of Institutional Diversity at Arizona State University. She is co-winner of the 2009 Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences. I have a couple questions that I'm going to sort of prime the pump with here, Lynn. Okay. And then, you know, we can just let <coughs> the conversation flow however it does. Um, there are many things about your history and what you've done in your career that are immensely impressive and have broken all kinds of barriers. But one of the things that I've been most intrigued by and which um, I know very few other people who have achieved is the way in which you have not only tolerated and encouraged a multiple methods approach to how one does work, but how you've conquered <laughs> so many different methods. You really, you really are very um, au courant in just almost, you know, first you learned, you learned game theory and you learned microeconomics, you've been president of the Public Choice Society. How did you do that? <laughs> what gave you the capacity to do that, and what gave you the reason to do that? Well, partly, as an undergraduate, I had to work my way through and um, UCLA, and I took a double major. Uh, political science didn't look like it was as much of a potential place to get a job, and with economics, I took some business. Uh, I thought maybe that would enable me to get a job eventually. And um, uh, it did. You in were a right. Way. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I, I spent then three years in Boston. And my first experience of graduating from college and going out in the world was, do you have typing and shorthand? Right. <laughs> and I didn't have shorthand. So I had to learn it uh, via, um, that was one of the first skills I had to learn after my baccalaureate. And actually, I still use it because if you're doing an in-depth interview, right, uh, and you can take the first six words or eight words, you don't have to take the whole thing, and it's fast. And, uh, and so no one has to transcribe it the same way they yeah. do. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so they're not teaching it the way they used to, but um, I, I, I fortunately did have to take it, <coughs> and I actually didn't ever use it for a real job. Uh, I've just used it as one of my skills. But um, then going back, um, I was, uh, 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 was in business in personnel management. I went back home and became a public personnel manager at UCLA and started coursework for a master's. And I uh, thought, hmm, this is kind of neat. A lot different than undergraduate, because when I was an undergraduate, my goal was graduating and I was working 30 hours a week. And you don't, you learn how to take exams. And so I consider my baccalaureate to have taught me how to take exams. Uh, then I got into these graduate seminars and oh, they're really interesting and fun. So I thought, well, why not go to graduate school? And I uh, went over and talked to the folks in economics and uh, they said, um, 
don't think it makes very good sense. So they didn't want to have me apply even. I think they're kicking themselves right now. Well, <coughs> the, um, but um, political science would admit me. Uh, but then, um, I, I, I think in the uh, prefatory I mentioned that uh, they had not had a woman in the department for simply years, and uh, they admitted four of us in a class of 40, and it was a huge controversy. Uh, that we found out. Fortunately, there were four of us because we could kind of buddy together. Right. And um, so I, I took a lot of uh, economics in my graduate program, but I was studying water resources there, so I had to take uh, some of water resources. I took Oscar Grusky and sociology, and so I learned a good deal about the sociology of uh, things at that point. So my my PhD committee had engineer, sociology, economics, and political science on it. So you've always been interdisciplinary. Yeah. Yeah. I just kind of thought that was the way you did things. And did the economics give you a base for learning these other skills that you learned? The game theory, obviously. Oh, yes. <coughs> well, yes and no. Um, but uh, the behavioral economics of the experiments is sort of a whole other set of skills, Yeah, right? but that's, that grows out of uh, mm -hmm. having a very firm, solid interest in economics, which I've had all the way along. Mm -hmm. And then learning game theory, I didn't learn it as a graduate student, but I learned it later uh, and had the great pleasure of working with Reinhard Selton. Right. Um, so I learned it from a, <laughs> pretty, a <master. laughs> pretty great master. But the um, my so you learned that that year in um, Bielefeld. In Bielefeld, maybe? I had started to have some reading in game theory before I went uh -huh. there. Then that year, I uh, sat in on a, um, a seminar that was not a, a course; it was just visiting lectures. Then he invited Vincent and I back. Vincent had to edit a book, and I was back for a whole semester. And I took his uh, game theory in German. Wow. And uh, that helped both my knowledge of game theory and my knowledge of German. Uh, so I learned he is a master and uh, is not trying to show off. He's trying to really get you to have an understanding of what uh, is the foundation and what are the reasons and why do you come to this conclusion versus that. Uh, and then uh, I worked with Franjo Weising the second time I went back to Bielefeld, he is a mathematician also and a biologist. And um, ah, interesting. Uh, so I was able to do a couple of game theory articles with him. So I really have treasured game theory as a way of getting into the hub of some things. Now sometimes what it helps you is it shows something in game theory being unlikely or irrational. Right. And then you can take that and put it in an experimental lab. And I was very, very fortunate that uh, Jimmy Walker came to Bloomington just as I was getting hungry for how would we ever put these things in a carefully developed uh, laboratory experiment. And he is a fanatic for getting everything well-designed, pre-tested. Absolutely. Oh, I mean, you, when you do a lab experiment with an expert like Jimmy, uh, you, you know you've taken the theory and put it in the lab, as Vernon Smith urges you to do. Um, Jimmy did a postdoc with Vernon Smith, so there's a connection there. And 
uh, it's enabled us to take things that I observed in the field, then we could look at it through game theory, then we could go to the lab and uh, test, you know, was this just an unusual set of things that I saw in the field? Or under careful, uh, would you find it repeated under situations that were very carefully designed? Wonderful to be able to go back and forth. Well, it sounds like you're both a lifelong learner and a learner by, do by doing. Well, yes, because I now have published several things using remote sensing. Right. Now there, uh, I have always done that with a co-author. I know enough about remote sensing that I can do some of the uh, field work that's ne necessary to do. Now, could, could you explain what remote sensing is a little bit for? Oh, okay. Um, uh, it's using GIS or geographic information systems to record some of the data from the satellites that go over. And uh, what I learned from uh, uh, taking a, s a seminar with uh, Tom Evans um, here on this campus is that that satellite sends back images, but they're in long strings of digital numbers. Hmm. So uh, something has to interpret it. And over time, they've developed very general programs for interpreting it. But if the light coming from the sun is coming on a hillside, it reflects differently to the satellite than when it comes to flat. And when it comes and there's corn, it's sometimes hard to tell whether that's corn or young forest. Mm -hmm. And so if you're really going to do a good job of interpreting, you have to take a geographic position system GPS machine out into the field and at key junctures take measurements and record where you were exactly and what you saw. Then that gets back into the computer and tightens up the analysis and you do, say, you take 100 sites out in the field, you put 50 in, and then see what happens. Can you predict? Uh, you take 25 of your other sites. Can you now predict them? And mm -hmm. if you can predict them at 90% accuracy, you don't need to do anything more. If you can't, you take some of those other 25 and put them in to the point you can predict at 90% accuracy. So what you've been doing is finding, you started in many ways, I mean, your original research when I first met you many years ago was doing field work. I mean, you were literally out there counting oh, yes, yes, yes. things <laughs> and in, you know, talking to people and, um, and you've developed all these other skills that improve that analysis and you seem to keep going back between the field and a, a high level of abstraction but informed mm -hmm. by both theory and the very sophisticated whatever the cutting edge methods yeah. are as we develop And them. now I try to teach my graduate students that they should learn one method really well, at just mm -hmm. far out expert. They should have a second one that they learn very well, not necessarily right at that extreme level, and then be aware of the skills from some of the others so that they can work with teams. Right. So with the um, remote sensing, I don't do all the analysis. I've worked with Harini Nagendra and uh, other colleagues who are experts. And, but I know enough that I can work with them. Well, you're also bringing some questions that they might not otherwise yeah. ask. Yeah, 
But uh, so uh, on some, or right now, I'm doing a, a lot of work in forestry. And that means we go and we define the boundaries of a forest. We draw a random sample of plots. Random sampling is something I'm familiar with. Yeah. But <laughs> then inside, we, we draw circles of, of uh, one meter, uh, three, and 10. And we have to count every tree. Well, I can count trees. Right. Uh, and I've now learned how. Do you know what a DBH is? I haven't a clue. <laughs> <laughs> Diameter breast height. And it is a very key measure so that if you measure a tree about here, uh, and there's a, a real place, for it, but it's basically under your chin about, and then you measure the height, you can get a volume. And that's one of our ways of getting a basal area uh, and getting a sense of the volume of wood and carbon in a forest. So how does this relate back to your institutional analysis? What are you doing with the remote sensing data, for example, that is informed by the kind of institutional analysis that you've yeah. made famous? Well, there what you have to do is get a foundation of the slope and all aspect, et cetera, the, ge uh, the uh, ecology. But then you can't do it unless you can get clear boundaries of what's on the ground. And that takes a lot of field work to get the boundaries and to know the rules uh -huh. of that. Then you can look at three time periods mm -hmm. and uh, uh, the space and look at what difference does having the boundary here. Uh, in some cases, the boundary makes no difference. Right. Uh, everything going around on every side of it is the same. In other cases, the boundary it cuts Makes all off, the difference. Makes all the difference. And, but you've got to have the institutional knowledge to get the boundaries right. If you can't do that, you can't use it for institutional analysis. Right. So this very much fits with the work you've been doing about the conditions all your life, really, about the conditions under which different kinds of institutional arrangements work mm -hmm. and other kinds work and which kinds of governance systems will promote one goal as yeah. opposed to another goal. Yeah. Yeah, and it's fun. Yeah, sounds um, like fun. The <laughs> um, uh, well, one of the um, ones that is uh, in the supplement for the article in Science that Tom Dietz and Paul Stern and I did uh, on the struggle to government commons, love the title, um, is of um, uh, four uh, protected areas in Guatemala, one of which is Tikal. And uh, this is a simply beautiful area. People mm, flock to it from gorgeous. all over the world, and they pay a good fee. And they pay so much that the uh, protected area sends money up to the government. Uh, thus, they can put walls around, they can march around, and it's an excellent shape. In the same remote picture, uh, not picture, but same remote image, there are two other uh, protected areas, uh, same institution devastated by mm -hmm. deforestation. And then there's a fourth one that is in good shape, but nature's protecting it. It takes mm. three days by mule to get up there. Interesting. Interesting. So the other theme I'm hearing here, um, which brings me back in some ways to the workshop, is collaboration. Oh, yes. <laughs> and interdisciplinarity. And I know that lots of people this week have been talking to you about the obstacles that you faced as being a woman, <laughs> but I'm also interested in the obstacles you've faced as being someone who's seriously committed to interdisciplinary work and to collaborative work. Uh, we tend to think of scholarship 
unfortunately, I think, and you know, I share this taste with you, is being sort of monastic. You know, everybody goes into their office or goes off in the field, and but you really are committed to interdisciplinarity and teamwork, and the workshop is the model of that. So, what kind of obstacles have you faced in sort of creating that kind of institution? Uh, it. it it's been a challenge. Um, uh, disciplines don't like it when you publish <laughs> in other places. And for example, I was very thrilled when Jimmy Walker, Roy Gardner, and I had an article in the American Political Science Review uh, in 1992. And that was uh, the uh, covenants with or without swords. And right. it turns out to be a, a very key uh, publication in terms of looking at the role of people monitoring each other. But uh, Jimmy and Roy were told by their department that it would give them no credit at all. Right. American Political Science Review. Mm -hmm. And I think some of my articles in economics have not been given much credit by my department. So the uh, I do advise my graduate students, uh, until you have tenure, Please be sure that there are two or three articles and you're the only author and it's in your discipline. I hate to advise you this way, but I want to see you have tenure. And I know in many departments, one, they don't know what to do with co-authored. So uh, anytime you have a tenure thing, you have to write all your co-authors and ask them to say whether or not you right. did anything. Uh, and if there are none, uh, I was on the college tenure committee, um, uh, people coming up uh, for tenure who had only co-authored were frequently rejected uh, because they did only teamwork. Right. And so the part of our rules inside the university are not enhancing uh, interdisciplinarity and teamwork. So what kind of... I know it's still a very tough road to for um, non-tenured faculty. Do you think it's gotten easier? A little, a little. And there are now schools that are interdisciplinary and are a lot easier to... Um, yes, uh, there's more of that. Yeah, there's Absolutely. much more. But it's, yeah, but if you go in, if you're traditional economics or di traditional political science, it's rough. I don't know, I've been noticing that in some of the best political science departments, the highest ranked ones, it's become a lot easier to yeah. do that. There's a recognition that cognitive science is yes. a crucial yeah. tool, that economics is a crucial tool, and that you therefore might publish in yeah. their journals if yeah. you're really good at that one. Yeah, otherwise you're making claims that uh, aren't, isn't supported. But is that your, I mean, and that I think you're right. Yeah. But it's, you know, we're. It's still a tiny yeah. fraction yeah, of Yeah, it's it. still, uh, we need more of it. Absolutely. <laughs> well, what about um, once you got tenure, um, did you still face all kinds of obstacles about, I mean, you've mentioned the problem that Jimmy well, and Roy partly, faced. Partly, um, we created the workshop. And uh, so our life and activities were a weekly colloquium, our own graduate students, getting them out, um, uh, 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 bringing in NSF money. So I did do a great deal of um, 
of writing grants, and NSF has been wonderful. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, you, and you've helped uh, NSF this week. I hear Barbara <laughs> Mikulski <laughs> was noting you as Senator <laughs> Mikulski was noting you. Oh, good, good. To help uh, make sure that the political science program in NSF was to continue to be funded. Yes, yes. So thank you, Lynn. Yeah, well, um, th thank you, NSF, because you <laughs> can't do the kind of, if you're going to do large N, and one of my studies uh, was a, uh, had a survey of 18,000. Right. Well, you can't do a, a random sample of 18,000 people uh, without uh, external. Then we did another study uh, that was of 80 metropolitan areas in the U.S. Uh, we're now doing a study of 200 for over 200 forests around the world. The, none of that is feasible without financial support. Right. So, but by getting these grants and having the workshop, you were able to insulate yourself, I take it, to some extent from some of these counter pressures yeah, towards I, doing interdisciplinary see, work. See, I was not ever concerned about salary, so uh, that's never been an issue for me. And for some colleagues who uh, have big families and all the rest, it's a major issue. And so. Well, they I also tie up their prestige with their salary. Yeah, and so I don't. Yeah. I don't. In fact, when I was chair of the Department of Political Science, I purposely kept my salary at zero because our junior faculty were just, we weren't competitive and I was yeah. very, very worried. So for me, that sort of thing, uh, I don't compete with my colleagues. Um, it's just not something that, that's not the way I think. And so it really hasn't been an impediment, but uh, so we've had yet excellent uh, political scientists involved in the workshop for a very long time. Uh, and some of them were so excellent that other places have hired them. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> so, I, you know, in the prefatory, you talk about um, the problems of getting a job in the first place and, and even the problems of getting tenure. Uh, what about the problems? W were there any problems you faced going from associate to professor to, to full? No, I don't think so. I never even, I, I'm not sure how many years it, I, I just yeah. didn't pay any, you know, I had tenure, so I, I wasn't paying attention to these and things. And it just happened when yeah. it happened. Yeah. Right. No, after being so turned aside at an early juncture, uh, where it was, you'll never be able to teach in a major university, you just can't get a job, to da 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 uh, I think uh, getting tenure and, and being able to have the workshop and the activities, et cetera, that was so satisfying that I didn't worry about some of these other ranking things. Right. One of the questions that I've, um, you talk a little bit about this in the prefatory, but I've always been deeply curious about, and you read, I mean, you, you saw the video we did mm -hmm. last year with Robert Dahl and the history of how he got into the concept and the way he thought about mm -hmm. democracy. I mean, the thing that you've really focused on is the commons and the way in which, and common pool resources and how people manage those. and. How did this issue come to be so critical to you? What's well, I heard Garrett Hardin give a lecture, uh, and I didn't know when I did my dissertation on uh, groundwater basin management and uh, watching 700 people go through a very tough job of uh, negotiating in the shadow of the court and creating special districts and doing incredible things that they were dealing with uh, the commons. Um, I'd, my dissertation used the concept of public entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. So I was uh, very much influenced by Buchanan and Tulloch right. and Schumpeter. 
Mm -hmm. uh, so Schumpeter's notion of entrepreneurship uh, was what I was looking at when he was public entrepreneurship. Um, and um, well, why water resources then? What got you? Uh, well, a, a seminar, uh, uh, the first seminar I took with Vincent, and um, right. then uh, we didn't continue being student faculty because we dated and all. Um, he had a brilliant idea. He had been studying water uh, resources in Southern California, and he was seeing that the various um, uh, groundwater basins were organized differently. And so he made it apparent to anyone who might be in a graduate seminar that they would have to take one of these basins and really get, dig in and figure out what was going on. Well, I was assigned West Basin. Um, uh, I don't even remember why. <laughs> we just all, and there was a list and you got assigned it. And it turned out that West Basin was 45 minutes away from UCLA and the headquarters. And I went down and I started to attend the meetings of the private association that they had created to discuss this. And I could see them struggling hmm. with these ideas and what to do and how to do it. And then I interviewed them in depth. And then the wonderful thing, when you study local, sometimes you have access to files that right. you don't have if you study Congress. And so I was talking with them and I said, well, how would I find some of the early paperwork? Oh, here's it's the right there. <laughs> Yeah, it's right there. You can open any file drawer. You can take anything we have a copy of. So if there was a copy, I could literally have one of the copies. And if it w there wasn't one and I wanted it, they said, just here's Xerox, make it. Of course, it was in the days before you had <laughs> computers. Uh, well, I, that gave me insights to people, some of whom would spent 20, 30 years trying to solve this tough problem. Mm. And there had not been one thing they did. They, they did a number of different things, including building a um, barrier against the ocean coming in by putting water down through wells. Very ingenious. And um, so uh, when I, I didn't know I was studying the commons. Well, then in 68, I defended 65. Nancy Olson's book was written and published right. in 65, and so it wasn't something I read at the time of doing the dissertation. Buchanan and Tulloch was a 62, so I had. Um, but Hardin gave a speech on the IU campus, and I went to it, and he indicated the more general. But then it was that he really was worried about population. And he indicated that every man and every woman should be sterilized after they have one child. And he was very serious about it. This was it. Garrett Hardin. Yes. Not Russell. Right. Yes, Garrett <laughs> Hardin. And uh, I was somewhat taken aback. My theory proves that we should do this. And, uh, well, people said, well, don't you think that that's a little <laughs> severe? No, that's what we should do or we're, we're sunk. Well, he, in my mind, became a, a totalitarian. Yeah. And um, I thus had seen a real instance where his theory didn't work, and his theory he was carrying forth at such a level. And we were then doing this studies of police, um, and we did that for 15 years all over the country. But, uh, and that would have been studying local public goods. 
right. a different kind of commons, right, but right. nonetheless. But these were the issues that yeah. were gripping you, how people yeah. solved these problems. And then uh, there was a National Research Council committee created, and what they had found was that political science were talking to economists or sociologists or engineers or historians. People who studied Africa didn't talk with people who studied Asia. Mm -hmm. And if you did fishery, you didn't know anything going on about water. So we had three ways of cutting into the study of common pool resources and no accumulation. Wow. None. And we then had a big meeting in Annapolis in 1986 and began to discover it. And within six months, we had identified over a thousand case studies written all over the world. And that was just amazing. And so all of us who lived through that experience were changed. Uh, and that was when I first turned to meta-analysis of how did uh -huh. we identify and see if we couldn't code them. And there, oh, it was agonizing because you'd identify 10 variables. Right. And then case A had five of them and not the other five. And case B had the other five. Other five, <laughs> but not. And, and so we had to go through an incredible number of individual cases before we could get a set that had common variables. And so you knew your theory. And this was what years? Oh, this would have been the big meeting was 86. And so we were struggling in the late 80s to create the database. And what was wonderful about it was our field was a founding cabinet that we could all go to. So we would be arguing right. about this. And well, now let's go back and recode your cases with this idea. Check on new cases about this. And so, so it wasn't all digitized. No. Oh no! Yeah, <laughs> just to remind. Oh no! No no! Our viewers of, yeah. of how but it recent gave us, computers are. It it turned out meta analysis there was unbelievably useful, because the field was right there, mm -hmm. and we met every week, and we would work on something, and then we say, mm, we don't have this quite right. Let's go back, reread some of what we've done, and take another case or two so that we'd push it ahead, and you can't do that out in the field. So a lot of some of this work informs governing the commons. Obviously. Oh yes. Yeah. Oh yes. Yeah. And I worked and worked on that, and um, uh, Adela Schlager and S. Y. Tang uh, did their dissertations on this, and eventually part of that became the book Rules, Games, and Common right. Resources right. with Jimmy and, and uh, Roy Gardner. But um, when I was in Bielefeld the second time, everyone pushed me for, oh, let's get some. You know, tell you know, is it what kind of market rules will work? Right. Uh, what kind of bureaucratic rule? I mean, they wanted simplest, and I kept reading, and we we couldn't come up with simple answers. Right. And so I took, I uh, had a sabbatical, and Jim Alt had asked me to give some lectures at Harvard, and Doug North had I asked remember me that. to. Yeah. Yeah, it was a wonderful thing that Doug, I uh, had given a lecture on uh, uh, some early work that uh, was at WashU. And he said, oh, you should do a book. And then Jim Alt asked me to give the lecture at Harvard, five and of them. And this was for the series that they yeah. were then co-editing. Yes. Right. Yeah. And so uh, having, I had a sabbatical and an invitation to do a book and five lectures at Harvard. And so I thought, ah, what an opportunity. Several and years later. <laughs> well, I had to give those lectures that spring. And about 
February, March, I thought, there's no way I can't. And I just got desperate, and I, you know, because I was identifying this kind of, you know, was it all that they used three-quarters rules? Was it majority? Uh, did they have to have a leader? Uh, and I couldn't find any of these statistically significant. So that's when I went up a level and said, well, can I get kind of some of the commonalities hmm. and that I then ended up calling design principles. Mm -hmm. But I chose cases that had been at least 100 years, if not more. So uh, why were some successful and right. then why right. were some failures? Right. And did those design principles count for anything? And I, I put them out because that was as good as I could do. And fortunately, uh, they've been quite sustainable. They There's now have. a study of 110 systems or so that are articles that have evaluated them and a very large number of case studies and they seem to be pretty robust. Not perfect, but robust. So it sounds like the, the whole project that led to the publication of Governing the Commons was really in some ways transformative for your career oh, yes. as well. Oh yes. I, I remember inviting you to do a reader meets your critics yeah. panel at APSA right yeah. after Governing the Commons. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah, and, yeah, and you know, the design principles were so far off. Yeah, I mean, people were just like, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Boundaries. Um, right. No, it was a whole new language yeah. to learn, a whole new way to think about things. Yeah. Absolutely. And fortunately, I'd just been so immersed in it uh, that uh, it really made a difference. But I didn't come up with a decision rule. I said that people right. had to be able to make some of their own rules and, and then adapt them over time. Right. And that's what's so important. The adaptation was also very really important. Yeah. And people keep wanting the formula. And <laughs> I, if anything, if I want one lesson, is there's no ideal formula for right. all of these things. Think how different they are. Well, and it also you also um, imply that it depends what the problem is, at what yeah. level of government. Yeah, and it's some things solved. need national. Right. Some things need global. Right. Some things need very very local. Yeah, and right. some things don't need to be government at all. Right, <laughs> or governed. <laughs> so where the where did that lead you then? So you did governing the commons, and you still weren't doing experimental work at that point, right? You were doing field work. You were doing meta data, and that, then you started getting really seriously. You st I can see how the game theory informed yeah. all that. That yeah. was clearly part of the. Well, story. I've been reading about experimental. And I actually taught with Bobby Herzberg a graduate seminar on experimental research, which was all work that others had done. Mm -hmm. And then one of my graduate students at that point, Rick Wilson, right. um, uh, there was a faculty member uh, that was an experimentalist. Jimmy hadn't come in yet. And he did his dissertation using game theory. It was uh, an experimental. And I'm trying to find a way of taking an, an a, a computer lab and turning it into experimental lab was tricky. But uh, Rick did a fabulous job. And um, then uh, Jimmy came to campus and I looked him up and said, have you ever thought, because he'd already done a lot of on public yeah, goods, yes. but nothing on CPRs. Right. And then with Roy here as a game theorist, it really enabled us to put those techniques together. Oh, that's fabulous. Yeah. And again, I wasn't a game theory expert. While I know enough to write it occasionally, I can collaborate. I wasn't an expert in experimental, but I was really interested. 
and then to be able to work with two experts and then to bring things from the field back to the lab really made a difference. Absolutely. But one of your skills, one of your many skills, and this one was not so much learned at Bielefeld or um, required by a job like shorthand, is to find the people who do have the skills you need or the capacities mm -hmm. you want and bring them together with each other as well as with you. Well, but happenstance is part of that. And so I wasn't, I didn't well, not recruit. everybody can make happenstance. But I didn't recruit either Jimmy or no, Roy. No, I understand that. They were here, and then I heard about them, and we began working together. But, you know, when we were doing the re review this week of the workshop, um, one of the things that became quite apparent is a number of people are there because you married them, as it were, <laughs> sometimes quite literally, but intellectually more importantly, yeah. um, where they had sort of been vaguely aware of each other but didn't realize that they had some common yeah. interests that would make that there was a really mutual and big positive gain from working together. Mm -hmm. Well, one of this is we have had a tradition of working groups. Right. And they're informal. Um, uh, Vincent and I did not say we must have one. Uh, people would want to get started on something. Okay, uh, do you uh, have an initial list? Do you, will somebody take the egg? Don't put it all on our secretarial staff. Right, right. Get it organized and thought through. And then I've been in some and noticed that, well, we needed uh, a few more skills here, so can we get somebody else in? So I've invited people in. Um, and then sometimes uh, said, gee, sometimes can we works. work together? Yeah. yeah. Well, that's great. Okay, so we've gotten up to where you're dealing with game theory now and beginning to get involved with experiments. Now, what, and that led to the trust and reciprocity work and a variety of other things that, that begin to explore the common goods and common mm -hmm. pool resource problems at a whole different yeah. level in a whole different set of settings. What led you to the remote sensing and what got you in, the environmental mm -hmm. questions that you study clearly come out of some of the common pool mm -hmm. resource questions. Well, one of the things that NSF did was indicate they wanted uh, centers that would be looking across the ecological social science. And we uh, uh, set up one here on the, uh, called SIPEC, a study for the study of institutions, population, and environmental change. <coughs> And Emilio Moran, who is a superb anthropologist, um, uh, uh, suggested we go in on a proposal. We did, and we became a center. So for a while, I co-directed the workshop and co-directed SIPEC. Um, and one of the tools he had learned, he as an anthropologist who had done a great deal of field work. <coughs> Pardon me. And they were making claims about things from remote sensing that he thought were wrong. Ah, okay. So he had trained himself in remote sensing. And then we ran a summer program where we trained them in remote, in a little bit of game theory, not too much, but enough, in institutional analysis and in field work. So is this the first time with SIPEC that field work has been brought together with remote sensing? No, Emilio had certainly brought it together before. Okay, so Emilio is yes. crucial in that. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And see, he was studying the Amazon and some of the patterns of deforestation. And by going up, mm -hmm. he could observe patterns that you can't on the ground. Mm -hmm. And that's why they're so important, because you can interpret it better. 
if you've been on the ground when you're looking above, but he has some fantastic early articles that are just unbelievable, and I learned so much. So I only have a few more questions because we are beginning to run out of time. Uh, I can't help but ask how the Nobel Prize <laughs> <laughs> is affecting <coughs> or likely to affect your work in your life. Yeah. I know it's very, I mean, you just won it on Monday, so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still The not one thing I didn't find credible about your winning the Nobel Prize was the announcement that you were woken at 6.30. My experience of you is that you're sending emails at 4 a.m. in the morning. Sometimes. I had been up early and gone back to bed. Oh, there you go. Okay, <laughs> so you were taking a nap when they woke you up. <laughs> but I sometimes now, you know, I'm in my... Seven is, so sometimes I, I do actually sleep to seven. <laughs> oh, good for you, Eleanor. I'm glad. <laughs> but I, I had been up, yes. But they woke me up because yeah. I had gone back and I was really sound asleep. <laughs> so how do you think it's going to change the way you do work and what your life is going to be like? Or Well, it's not going to change the way I do work because that's teamwork. And, um, and you want to be part of the yeah, team. Yeah. But I haven't quite absorbed the email load has just been unbelievable. And um, it's fun talking with you, but this is about, I've been averaging uh, six or so interviews every day. Right. And, uh, well, this was planned. Yes. Ago. Oh, it was <laughs> planned a long time ago. <laughs> and what a pleasure for me. Yeah. But um, I, I Hopefully there'll be a little bit of quiet in here somewhere where I can actually think about this. Yeah, I imagine. But we've got new research projects that were already coming along and we're going with them. Good. That's great. Is there anything else you want to tell me or you think our readers should know about? Well, I think they should read your work. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, I, I think that uh, I've learned a great deal and I think part of our overlap of interest is that just having formal rules are not enough. And then the question is, uh, are, where do the rules come from? What are the incentives of the people inside? Uh, what are they to just you know, go buy them and not let anybody know and just cheat? What are the uh, uh, incentives to, to change them? Right. Uh, all of those things. And we've been kind of taught as political scientists that those rules are the rules. And what we know from the field is that uh, rules on paper and rules in form are different. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. So that's maybe the lesson. Thank you, Lynn. This has been a real <laughs> pleasure to talk to you as always. Thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to an Annual Reviews prefatory interview. For over 75 years, Annual Reviews has guided scientists to the essential research literature in the biomedical, life, physical, and social sciences. Learn more at annualreviews.org.